You know, everyone loves a good story. That's something we say sometimes to communicate the fact that stories communicate. They are usually interesting and therefore easy to follow, as long as, of course, they are good and we haven't heard them before. As a result, they tend to keep our attention, and we can remember them for longer periods of time rather than just propositional or statement teaching. So whether it's story time as a kid at the local library or perhaps as an adult reading a novel or watching a movie, stories are a part of our daily lives. But strictly speaking, everyone loves a good story is just not true. And by that I do not mean that there are some people who don't like stories, though there probably are. What I mean by that is sometimes there are stories that we do not like because it is clear that we are the bad person in the story. There's a very famous one in the Old Testament, the story of David and Bathsheba. It wasn't that story per se, but it was the encounter after that. Nathan the prophet has the the task of going to the king and confronting him with his sin. And when he gets there, he does not just say, David, you have sinned. Instead of making a statement, he tells a story. He makes up a story. And the story goes like this. There is a wealthy man who has all kinds of livestock, and a guest comes to his house. And it was customary in that day to be hospitable, and so it was expected that the guest would be provided for. But rather than taking one of his own animals and killing it for his guest, he takes an animal from a neighbor who had far less than he had, and he kills that animal and provides it for his guest. David is incensed at the story, immediately proclaiming judgment upon a man who would do such things, telling Nathan what that man needed to repay in order to make things right and make restitution for his crime. And then very famously, Nathan, I can see him looking into the eyes of David, perhaps even pointing his finger, and he says, you are the man. I don't think David liked that story. He reacted to it favorably. He repented But it's a story that I don't think he liked. And that's a similar story to what we are going to see this morning, a story that is told to those who are present, and they are not going to like the story because they see themselves in it. But stories are often more effective than statement-by-statement propositional teaching. Now, some of it depends on who you are. Some of it is your likes and styles and preferences. Some people like heavy content. Some people like stories and need stories to keep their attention. That is why I occasionally throw in an illustration or a story in my sermons and perhaps ought to do that more often, though in Mark's gospel, the text is itself often a story. And so some people like stories. Some people like deeper content. Some like parables. Some like um, propositional teaching. And some of it's just a matter of how we are wired, how our brain thinks and listens and learns. Well, the good news is today I have both for you. I have a story, and then I have a propositional statement from Jesus. So we have a story and a statement. And because we have both, it doesn't matter how you're wired. The chances are very good that you're going to be able to pay attention to at least half of the sermon, which is probably better than the average Sunday. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, is two more controversial encounters that Jesus has with the religious leaders in Jerusalem in the temple. One is going to be in a story format, the other in a statement. 
So I spent a lot of time this week coming up with a creative title for this sermon. And here it is, story and statement. We got one story, we got one statement. And both of them are going to teach us something about the disciples' duty as far as it goes in following Christ. So let's look at Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, now here's the teaching statement, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Obviously, we are going to start with the story. We call it a parable. In fact, we often title it the parable of the tenants. But I, instead, am going to title it a passion parable because Jesus is talking about himself and his coming passion. It is Passion Week. We are still on Tuesday of that week. And we know that he has already predicted three times in statement format that he is going to go to Jerusalem and be arrested and killed, and then he will rise again. And in this parable, he is saying very much the same thing, only he is doing so with a story. Now, just to remind you, a parable is a made-up story. It did not really happen, but it is a made-up story that is designed to teach spiritual truth. It is normally drawn from everyday life, as this one clearly is. But because it is a story that is made up, we have to be very careful that we do not push every detail, but instead we remain focused on the spiritual truth that is being conveyed. In verse 1, this parable is told to them. 
that is still the chief priests, scribes, and the elders, the men who make up the Sanhedrin, that ruling body of the Jews who had virtual absolute control over the religious life and a lot of control over political life. So Jesus is still in the temple, and he is still dealing with these opponents. This is actually the only major parable outside of Mark chapter 4 in Mark's gospel, telling us that this is indeed a significant teaching moment. Mark placed this here for a specific reason, and there is great teaching contained in this story. The story itself includes familiar details for residents of the first century Palestine, but probably not for most of us. Though nevertheless, it is still a rather simple story to follow. An unnamed man, and that's often the case in parables, the names are rarely there, an unnamed man owns a piece of property. And he decides that what he will do with that property is he will make a vineyard on that property And so he does everything necessary in order to provide for the vineyard so that fruit can be produced. He builds a fence or a wall around the vineyard. This would have been to keep the animals out. He puts a wine press there to squeeze the juice out of the grapes. And we saw several of these when we were in Israel, oftentimes just built right into the ground. And they would walk over the grapes, squeezing the juice out, and troughs would flow from that to storage units so that the juice could be captured. He built a tower. This tower would have provided observation to see if any danger was coming. It would have provided a place for the workers to rest or perhaps sleep. And maybe even it was a place for the storage of the crops. So he does all of this to get the land ready to produce fruit. And then he rents it out to tenant farmers and leaves the country. Again, absentee landowners were a common arrangement at the time. And the arrangement would have been that a certain percentage of the produce would go to the owner as rent. So no rent was paid on a monthly basis. Instead, when the crop was harvested, the owner would send his representative and he would receive a certain percentage, probably somewhere between a quarter and a half of the produce that was produced. And so that's what happens in this story. When the harvest time comes, the owner sends one of his servants to collect the rent in the form of fruit that is due him. But instead of paying, they beat him and send him away with nothing. And so the owner sends a second servant, this one with similar results, and that is followed by a third one. This one they do not beat. Instead, they beat him and kill him. Now, can you imagine being that third servant, presumably knowing that the owner has already sent two others and seeing how they returned? And now the owner says to you, it's your turn. I want you to go see if you can get the produce, and instead he is killed. Verse 5 gives us a summary that others were sent as well. Many servants were sent, some they beat, and some they killed. Now, those of you who have rental property know how difficult it is sometimes to collect rent. Those of you who are renters know that occasionally if you do not have the required rent, you tend to avoid the collector when he or she shows up. So you don't answer the door or you don't respond to your phone. But this story goes well beyond what any of us have experienced as renter or owner. These people are so evil and so wicked in the way that they are treating the servants of this particular owner. So what is the owner going to do? He has sent a number of servants, we don't know how many, 
and none of them have come back with the required payment. So now he decides he has one left he can send. He is going to send his son, a son that is beloved by him. Now again, we need to pause and remind ourselves that this is a parable. Because at this point we're saying, what is this father thinking? Why would he now send his son knowing how they have treated every servant that he sent? What kind of father would send his son, his beloved son, to men who are so clearly evil and violent? But they did not respect his son when he sent him as he supposed. They did not pay the rent. Instead, they killed him and cast him outside the vineyard walls. One of the greatest insults at that time or even today is to throw a body away without having a proper burial. That is why you will hear families of those who have been victims of crimes talk about needing the closure of a proper burial. So this was a great indignation to merely throw the body outside the property. They are no longer content with their fair share of the produce. They are no longer even satisfied with the produce itself. They now want the property that belongs to the owner. Evidently, they assume that the owner must have been dead. That is why he sent his servant or his son. And if he is now dead and his son is sent, this is the heir. If we kill him, this will become property that can be claimed by others. And who better to claim this property than the people who are already operating on the property? And so they kill the heir, thinking that the property will turn to them. So Jesus concludes the story by posing an easy question. What will the owner of the property do? In fact, it is such an easy question, he does not even wait for them to answer. He answers it himself. It is clearly well past time for the owner to act, and therefore he is going to come And he is going to bring judgment upon these wicked and evil tenant farmers. And then he is going to rent his vineyard out to others who will respond much differently than these individuals have. So that's the basic story. That is the parable itself. But of course, as I've already said, a parable is designed to teach a spiritual truth. So we must move beyond the story itself to look at the application of the story. What is the spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to communicate by use of this story? Well, to grasp the spiritual truth, we need to start with the people who are involved in this story and who they represent. The man who owns the vineyard is, of course, God. God who did everything necessary in order for the vineyard to produce fruit. God provided everything that they needed. God built it and established it just so that fruit could be produced and therefore harvested. Blessings in countless ways. And he expected a harvest. The vineyard is Israel. That's why I read Isaiah chapter 5 to you just a few moments ago. And you might have thought to yourself, why is he reading that passage? Frankly, it was not a very encouraging and uplifting passage. Think, why is he starting this service with Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, talking about God's vineyard producing wild grapes instead of real grapes? And now, hopefully, you know the answer. Because this idea of God and his vineyard is a prominent picture, both in the Old Testament and the New. The servants that are sent were the many prophets that God had sent to his people, warning of judgment, along with a demonstration of his patience and love. We're going to conclude Micah 
tonight, looking at Micah chapter 7. Micah is one of those prophets, one of those men sent by God to his people over and over again to warn that judgment is coming if they do not repent. And those prophets, some were beaten and some were killed, and that is what this story represents. And the son, well, surely you've picked up on that by now. The son, of course, is Jesus. And the fact that the wording there is very much similar to what we've seen before. His beloved son. We saw that in the baptism where God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We saw it at the transfiguration where God speaks again of his beloved son. And now we see it in this parable, which means we can now return to our question of earlier. Why would the owner, the father, why would God the father send his own son after he knows how all of these servants have been treated. And now we know that it is a picture of love. In spite of all of the evil, he is giving them another opportunity to respond correctly by sending not another prophet, but by sending his beloved son. But instead, the son is killed, as Jesus will be in just a few days. And the son is cast out of the vineyard, which may picture the fact that Jesus was crucified outside of the city walls. Finally, of course, the tenant farmers are the religious leaders whom Jesus is talking to. These are the temple authorities, and specifically the men who sit on the council of the Sanhedrin. And as a result, the others to whom the vineyard will be entrusted are Gentiles, God is going to cast out the Jewish leaders because they have rejected his son. And God is going to give his vineyard to others, Gentiles like us. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in this story. You are one of the others to whom the vineyard has now been entrusted. But we dare not conclude our application part merely by identifying the characters in the story. Jesus concludes it by an appeal to Scripture which is always a good thing to do. The quote comes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Interestingly enough, this is the same psalm that was quoted three days earlier on Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem. It is in Psalm 118 where they get the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now Jesus takes from that same psalm and gives us the quote that we find in verses 10 and 11. The cornerstone was the most important stone in the entire structure. It was necessary for the stability of the building. It was necessary for the symmetry of the building. That is, every other stone played off of this one cornerstone. And all the weight was bearing upon that one stone, factored out, of course, into all of the other stones. And therefore, many stones were rejected for this position because they did not meet the standard. They were not good enough to be the cornerstone, so they were cast aside. But of course, you know that Jesus is not talking about a building project. He's talking about himself. He is the stone that will be rejected. And that is what these religious leaders are still plotting to do. And it's a plot that they've been hatching for a very long time, and it is a plot that they are about to complete. But their rejection of Jesus will not be the end of the story. Instead, that stone that they have rejected will become the cornerstone of this whole structure since he will indeed rise again. And look at verse 11. Verse 11, it very clearly says, This is God's doing, and it is marvelous in his sight. 
Yes, it is an evil plan hatched by the religious leaders against the Son. And yes, they will be responsible for what they have done. But ultimately, God is orchestrating this whole drama for the salvation of sinners like you and me. And this is marvelous in His eyes and therefore glorifying to His name. Listen to what Peter said some days after this. This is in the book of Acts. He and John have been arrested. And they are formally standing before the Sanhedrin. Jesus is not formally standing before them in this story, but now as we fast forward, Peter and John are testifying formally before the Sanhedrin. Probably all 71 members are there to hear them. And this is what Peter says. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You know, we've given Peter grief throughout our Gospel of Mark study. Because Peter is that type A personality who sometimes says things before he thinks. We've often charged him with putting his foot in his mouth, as we like to say. But in this situation, Peter got it right. In Acts, Peter uses the very same terminology that Jesus uses here, and he uses it before the very men that Jesus is before here, and he tells them it's your fault that you have rejected Christ, but he has become the cornerstone. It did not go as they had planned. The one they rejected has now become the centerpiece of it all, which leads, of course, to the response of this passion parable. Their response was to continue their plot to arrest and kill him. Though not right away, because once again we, we see that they fear the people. So instead, they just walk away, leaving the story they knew pointed to them. Did you catch that? It says they knew that Jesus was talking about them. Now, we don't know if they knew he was talking about his death in the sending of the Son, but we do know that they knew that he was talking about the tenant farmers being them and their wicked and sinister plot, and yet they will move forward with it nevertheless. But what about your response? Will you reject the sending of the Son? Casting God aside because you want to own your own life? Or will you accept the loving and gracious offer that God in sending us His Son has made to you? If I go back to Acts in that passage that I just referenced, the very next verse, after what I just read a moment ago, the very next verse, Peter says, and there is no salvation in, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They had rejected the one means of salvation. And there is no other means, for Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. So we have a response. We can walk away and leave as these blind religious leaders did, or we can embrace and stay understanding that he is the only Savior who can forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to God. Well, that is the passion parable. But from the Passion Parable, we move forward to the disciples' duty in our second episode. And as usual, there is much more to the duty of a disciple than merely the two things we're going to look at in this particular episode. But in statement format now, Jesus talks to us about the duty of a disciple. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what we said was the most important question that anybody has to answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And we acknowledge that that was asked in a way to lead toward a works salvation. That is, what do I have to do? And we talked about the fact that it is not what we have to do, but it is what Christ has done, and we must place our faith and trust in him, repenting of our sins, and we will be saved. So that was the greatest question that anybody has to ask and answer. But today we might be looking at the second greatest question that some of you are asking. And that is, why do I have to pay taxes? Or at least, why do I have to pay so much in taxes? You know, it's fun when your teenager comes home with the first paycheck from their first job, isn't it? They, Mom and Dad, what, what is going on here? I mean, they don't really have check stubs anymore. It's all direct deposit. But, you know, in the old days, they'd come home with this check stub, and it would say the hours times the rate, and there's the gross pay, and then they're going, Dad, what is FICA? What, what, is, what is FED? And then we enjoy those few moments, and we say, well, that's the taxes you have to pay. That's what the government takes out of your pay to provide for all of these services that you enjoy and that others need. And they say, well, why so much? And then we have even more fun by saying, you don't know the beginning of it. When you get older, there's going to be other taxes you have to pay, property taxes on your house, sales tax on everything you buy, an automobile tax when you register your car, and on and on it goes. Which, of course, brings up the broader question about our relationship as Christians with the government. Now, some commentators believe that the end of the parable in verse 12 is the end of the third day, that is Tuesday. Others believe that Tuesday goes all the way through the end of chapter 13. So we really don't know what day we are in when we look at this particular episode, but we do know where we are. We are once again in the temple in Jerusalem with Jesus and the religious leaders. The Pharisees have come. We know them well. They are the ones who are most often in conflict with Jesus. And they brought with them some Herodians. The Herodians we know very little about. In fact, they are only mentioned three times in Scripture. Obviously, in this text, they are mentioned in chapter 3 that we looked at a long time ago. And they are mentioned in Matthew's gospel in the parallel account to the story that we are looking at here. Those are the only three times they're mentioned in Scripture. Outside of Scripture, in secular literature of the day, they are hardly mentioned at all. There may be one brief reference that Josephus uses in his History of the Jews, but other than that, this particular group is not mentioned at all. So all we know about them is their name, and by their name we know that they were sympathizers and supporters of Herod's cause and therefore the Herodian dynasty. So they were loyal to Roman rule over Palestine, which, as you can imagine, would not have endeared them to the other Jews. So generally speaking, they would not have had much in common with the Pharisees. These are not two groups that you would normally see working together. This is like Republicans and Democrats coming together for a common cause. It is very rare, and when it does happen, you know it's a serious issue. So for the Pharisees and the Herodians to come together in their opposition toward Jesus, that tells us just how much hatred they did have toward him. So he is facing now not only religious opposition, but political enemies. So these two groups come to Jesus with yet another perplexing question. And one they think that any answer he gives will offend someone. 
If Jesus says, pay the tax, the people will not like it. They despise this tax. Not because of its amount, a denarius was equal to a day's pay. The amount was not overly high, but they despised this tax because it reminded them of their foreign domination. Plus the coin that they had to pay it with, the denarius, had the image of Caesar on one side of it and an inscription from Caesar on the other, both of which struck them as idolatry and the promoting of the worship of Caesar. So they didn't like this at all. But if Jesus says, do not pay the tax, then he has become one of the religious zealots. And there were occasionally groups who would oppose the paying of this tax, but those efforts were generally and quickly put down with violent means. So as far as the men who are in front of Jesus, the Herodians would have gladly paid the tax. The Pharisees would have reluctantly paid the tax, but they would have paid it nevertheless. So this appears to be yet another no-win situation for Jesus. He is going to offend someone, a particular group of people, with whatever answer he comes up with, either the people or the authorities in Rome. And that's exactly why they asked this question. This is not primarily about paying taxes. They really don't want the answer to that. They're trying to trap Jesus. That's the word we see in verse 13. It is a word that is used to speak of catching an animal in a snare or hooking a fish. And obviously you know that either one of those takes deceit or treachery. You have to bait a hook in order for a fish to bite. You have to hide in the woods in order to catch an animal. Law enforcement continues to use these techniques in some types of crimes. They will pose as someone else online and seek to entrap someone, seek to lure someone into committing a crime, and then when, of course, they do, they arrest them. And so every time we, we read about one of these stories, we have a brief discussion about the legality of what we call entrapment. Is it okay to lure someone into committing a crime? Well, as part of their trap with Jesus, they begin by using flattery. And yet everything they say is true. They are trying to butter him up, as we say, baiting him into saying something that he believes because he doesn't care about people's opinions nor what happens, and so he's just going to speak the truth and let the consequences be what they may. It's easy to trap someone into something like that these days. I mean, one tweet can change your whole life. I mean, just one statement online, you can lose your job and everything else that comes with it. And so people are often baited into saying something that they later regret. Their words are accurate, but their motive is grossly misplaced. But as usual, and it's amazing that they've not learned this yet, Jesus is not trapped by their statement. He is well prepared for what he is about to face. And so he asks for a coin. It's ironic that they have one and he does not. You know, they're the ones asking, should we pay this or not? And Jesus says, well, you're the one that has the coin. Let me see it. He doesn't ask that because he doesn't know what's on it. He knows what's on it. He's going to use it as an object lesson. And so I might be adding just a bit here, but I can well imagine Jesus taking the coin in between his fingers and holding it up and asking them, whose image is this? And they say, Caesar. Okay, let me turn it over. Whose inscription is this? And they say, Caesar. And from that, he gives his rather famous statement, well, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
And so from this brief encounter, we get two statements, both of which pertain to the disciples' duty. First, we notice our duty toward government. With this one simple statement, Jesus declares that human governments are legitimate. Paul has a much lengthier argument about this in Romans chapter 13, and that argument comes to the same conclusion. God has established and ordained three institutions, the family, the church, and human government. And because he has ordained and established it, we have a responsibility to submit to and obey the government that is over us. And while that is true of everybody, it is particularly true of believers. Well, you say, what if our government is evil? I remind you that Jesus makes this statement, and Paul makes his argument, while both are under Roman rule. And that rule was certainly not friendly to Israel, nor anything close to what we know today as a democracy. Now, that does not mean that we have to do anything without question. There is a place for civil disobedience as a last resort, but only when the government is asking us to do something that is not God's will or is preventing us from doing God's will. Civil disobedience is not appropriate because we don't like certain policies or because our party is not in control. Now, of course, in our form of government, we have a right, and we should exercise that right to speak up and try to change policies and to hold government accountable. This is done by voting. Every believer has a responsibility to vote. We have the right, if we're 18 or older, to have our voice heard, and every believer ought to exercise that right. But it goes beyond voting. We can express our concerns to our elected officials in person or in writing. We can lobby government to change policies. Did you know that as Southern Baptists, we actually have an, an arm of our convention whose task it is to lobby the government? It is called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It is headed by Russell Moore. It is in Nashville. And their major task is not only to speak for moral issues on our behalf, but it is to lobby the government on moral and ethical issues for us. So we have a responsibility to vote, and we have a right to lobby. Well, you say, what if our taxes are too high? Which most of us can agree is generally the case. Well, can't I fudge just a little bit since taxes are too high? can I hide some of my income or exaggerate some of my expenses? The fact is, chances are pretty good if I know how to do it well that no one's going to find out. Well, I would say, yes, you can do that, and many people do. But I would also say if you're a believer who is committed to your duty as a disciple, that is not something that we should do. We should pay what we owe, whether we deem it to be too high or not, while obviously taking advantage of any legal breaks that are allowed. I'm not saying don't take uh, discounts that you're allowed, but we ought to pay what we owe. And frankly, that's where we generally conclude this passage. That's the part of the passage that you probably know better than anything else. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Jesus was asked a question about taxes, and he answers by saying, pay the tax. It is the duty of the disciple to pay taxes to the secular government, and in more general terms, to submit to and obey government as long as that obedience does not conflict with God's word. But if we stop there, we've only got one of the two duties that I mentioned. 
because the second is found in the second statement, and it is now our duty to God. He doesn't just say, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. He completes the statement by saying, and render unto God the things that are God's. So what belongs to God? So here it comes. I've got a feeling this is where you've been heading all along. You're about to turn this into a giving sermon. What belongs to God? Well, you, you give to Caesar the tax, and you give to God or the church your tithe. So tithe. And while that is very alliterative and is actually true, that is not my point at all. But before you breathe a sigh of relief, let me say that your duty to God goes far beyond what you give to God through your church. You remember Caesar's image was on the coin, so it belonged to him. That was a common idea in that day that because the image was on the coin, it was his coin. And that is why Jesus says render, that is pay back, give it back to him because it belongs to him anyway. Render unto Caesar what is already his. Well, then we ask the question, what is your image? What is stamped on you? And we go all the way back to the first chapter in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1. And there we read that you were created in the image of God. You have God's image stamped upon you. So if I could hold you up here this morning and I could say, whose image is this? We ought to be able to say, God's. Well, then give to God the things that are God's. And that means your life. That means this is all-encompassing. This is not just about giving our money to the church. This is about our giving our lives to God. There's a common theme in these two story and statement. They seem to be miles apart, but there really is a common theme, and that common theme is ownership. In the parable, God is the owner who provides everything needed for His vineyard to bear fruit for His glory. And yet it doesn't bear fruit. It bears wild fruit, as Isaiah tells us. And so God takes that vineyard and runs those people out and gives it to others with the same expectation that they will produce fruit. And those others are us. We are the new tenant farmers in God's vineyard. And we talked last week about the fact that we are to bear fruit. It is evidence of kingdom living. You will know them by their fruit, Jesus said, and we acknowledge that bearing fruit was not about trying harder or doing more, but bearing fruit was about abiding in Christ so that He might work in and through us. And then as we've just seen, we bear the image of God. He owns us. Thus, everything we are and do belong to Him. Now, I realize that you might immediately scoff at the idea of ownership. Nobody owns me. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. But again, the believer does not have the right to say that because we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we belong to God. And that's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. He is our all-powerful, all-gracious God, something we'll explore from Micah chapter 7 tonight. So don't bemoan the fact that you belong to God. Rejoice in that fact because belonging to God means also that God is going to preserve you and you will never no longer belong to God. You belong to Him forever. 
So give him the glory that he is due as you're part of his kingdom and live your life as his child, bearing fruit to his glory. Let's pray.